Morning. Um, today's second reading, the New Testament reading, is um, from Paul's letter to the Colossian Christians, chapter 3, verses 18 to 4 1. Chapter 3, verses 18 to 4 1, entitled Instructions for Christian Households. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. Slaves, Obey your earthly masters in everything and do it, not only when their eyes, their eyes on you and to curry their favour, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters." since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs. And there is no favouritism. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair, because you know that you also have a master in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Barry and Aria. Hello, everyone. That was a pretty good hello. Pass, Mark. I'll give you... I uh, hope uh, those who came to the working bee yesterday, thank you for coming. I hope nobody got a cold out of it. Probably wouldn't be here if he did, but uh, it was good fun in the rain, but lots happened. Uh, so thank you to all those who served us in that way. Let's pray, and then we come to uh, what is a passage that will make some tremble. And I hope as we come to it, we'll see the goodness of God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you great thanks that you are a good God. We thank you that you love us and care for us that you give us all we need, and we thank you that you give us your word. Today, Lord, help our hearts and our minds to be open, and let us be hearers of your word so that we might be doers of it. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week we were challenged in 3.1, since we have been raised with Christ, we need to set our minds on things above. And there were some very particular things that meant last week. In fact, we talked about sex and we talked about money. We're thinking from the heavenly perspective. Uh, and it means putting off the earthly perspective of those things and putting on a heavenly perspective. Now, if we found that challenging last week, and I think some of us did find that challenging last week, uh, this week might be even a bigger challenge for us. Because uh, we're asked today to put on a, no a new mindset in our homes, behind closed door, in the domestic situation of our life. And I think this is going to really challenge us. I know it will. It challenges all of us to come to God's word. 
but more than anything else, I think it's going to challenge us as to whether we think God is good, whether we think God's word is good, whether he is working for our best, whether he is working for those who love him. The alternate to today's passage would be to say of Christianity, I would rather domesticate it. I don't want to hear about the domestic picture. I rather domesticate Christianity so that my views, well, of the Bible submit to culture and submit to what humanity may well think. And so this is the tension that we come to as we come to today's passage. Can we hear God's views? Can we see them as good? And now to think these through, we're going to have to work backwards, I think, today. We'll work slaves and masters, children and fathers, wives and husbands. The sections will get a bit longer each time just to prepare you for it. Uh, Before we do, it's worth noticing three things. Three things before we go. First, the context. Uh, This letter was probably read out in a domestic situation. If you read Philemon, it would seem that this letter has come through his runaway slave to the church in Colossae. And it's being read out. And so as it's being read out, as they say, wives, everyone's kind of going, oh, yeah, I know the wives. Slaves, I know the slaves. Husbands, I know that everyone knew everyone. It's probably chickens running around and kids on the floor. And it's very domestic and very real. But what made it probably the most real was they have a slave and a master in the room. And the slave ran away on Isthmus. You can read his backstory in Philemon at some point. The second thing to note is who is addressed. It's aimed at particular groups. Not everyone here today is going to be addressed, but don't think it's irrelevant. It's still relevant because in whatever you do, do it all for the Lord. And so we still need to listen to it. And third, this is a particularly in-house message today. Uh, As I look around, I, I don't know who's in the church building, I don't know who's watching online, but I want to say, if you aren't yet Christian, we're really glad you're here. But this isn't the passage I would have chosen to speak to you about for your first time at church, if I'm honest. I like to try and be honest. And so I want to say to you, stick with us today. This may be hard to hear because culturally, this is a hard passage to think through. But what I would love for you to do is to stick with Jesus. Listen to him and see why Christian people hear Jesus and then live in radical ways in this world. So if that's you today, great to have you here. Please keep coming back. So, all that being said, first to slaves and to masters. Uh, Slaves and masters, they were a reality in the Roman Empire. There's no getting around that. Slaves and masters were real. Now, just because it's in the Bible doesn't mean the Bible says, yay, slavery. That's not true. Uh, Indeed, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, slaves should gain their freedom if they can. If you can get out, go. And he says in 1 Timothy 1, slave traders are amongst the most evil sinners that there are on a list of evil sinners. So here, Paul is just really addressing the reality of slavery. It it exists. It existed in their world. Now, if we're honest, slavery still exists in the world, if we open our eyes. The UN is still trying to get rid of slavery in the world. Just Google it. There's a whole bunch of different types of slavery, sex slavery, Uh, economic slavery, and the list goes on. These things still exist in the world. When Paul thought about slavery, he wasn't thinking about 19th century slavery. So taking people from Africa and taking them in different parts of the world, a great evil. 
that I can say Christians work to end, that great evil is a particularly terrible evil form of slavery. And that's not the version in Rome particularly. Not that it was great in Rome. Nobody wants to be a slave. Uh, reality was, though, you could sell yourself into slavery. Uh, if you had debts, if you needed to kind of get out of it, you could sell yourself and you could work your way out over a period of time. Uh, if you were caught in war, there was no jails to put you in. You either died or you could go into slavery, which gave you a pathway back out again of slavery. And so there is a sense in which it is a part of the social fabric of the time. So, not affirming slavery, I hope you've heard that very clearly. Uh, then he goes on to say, verse 22, slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything. Slaves obey in everything. Here is a challenging word. It's saying if you are stuck in slavery, be a good slave. Here's the particularly Christian take, verse 22, and do it not only when the master has their eye on you to win their favour, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. You see what it's saying? Don't just play eye service. You know, when they're looking, you're doing the right thing. And when you speak to them, I'll do that, and then you don't actually go and do it. No, in your heart, serve as if serving for the Lord. Uh, this is radical stuff. This is the putting off and the putting on of Colossians 3 for Christians in slavery. Uh, Paul then turns to the masters. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair, because you know that you also have a master in heaven. See, Paul also wants the Christian masters to be radically different. Colossians 3 applies just as much to them. Put off meanness, harshness, unfairness. Put on what is right. Put on what is fair. And why? Well, because Jesus is your master. That's why. Because Jesus radically transforms whoever you are as a Christian. Now, it's worth noticing these commands don't depend on each other. Do you see that? The Christian slave doesn't just do what's right when the master is good. And the master doesn't just do what's right when the slaves are wholehearted. They're independent commands that come together as he's speaking about them. Also notice Paul isn't dealing with the extreme scenarios here. Wouldn't we love him to say, well, what does that mean when the master says, do this ungodly thing? That's what we wanted to talk about because we're curious how how does this work in practice but but paul doesn't say he just says as a slave or as a master be godly live the transformed life now there's a whole lot of things we could say about these kind of extreme situation cases uh, too much for a sermon today there's enough to be said today really but i will say for this moment it's helpful to think through people who have suffered in these kinds of ways if you've ever read Bonhoeffer, there's a great example of thinking through the extreme situation. What do you do when you live under a tyrant? What do you do when you think it's better for Hitler to die than be alive? But I'm a Christian. Should I plot for his death? Bonhoeffer wrestled with that question and said, actually, yes, I should be involved in getting Hitler out of power, come what may. And then he took the consequences, which was his own death. There's an extreme situation. Paul's not speaking to that, but it's worth mentioning it. For us, I want to say, praise God that slavery is not embedded into Australian culture. But don't be naive. We contribute to slavery, modern slavery. When we buy our cheap T-shirts, there is a cost to a cheap T-shirt in the Western world. And so there are still principles to take away. As a consumer, you're also a master of someone else's destiny,
You just don't know who they are or where they are. But they're out there somewhere. Verse 23 says, Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men. See, Jesus is the judge. Work for Jesus. Care about what Jesus thinks of your heart and your attitude. Since you know that you receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It's the Lord you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for his wrong. There is no favoritism. Now, I'm not going to say that work is like slavery because it's not. Workers have choices. You can quit and try to find another job. You can do something else. But the principle is helpful. Heavenly thinking is to work as if for the Lord. So to seek to please Jesus in the way you do your job, the way you serve at church, the way you love your family, and so on and so on. Seek to please him, not mankind. And when inevitably people wrong you, verse 25 is helpful. The Lord will judge rightly. So you can imagine the slave being treated harshly, having some hope that in the end justice will be done. They had no control. They couldn't get out of it. They know justice will be done. We'll be vindicated as Christians when we're working as if for the Lord. So that is a great encouragement. So slaves and masters. Children and fathers are next up, uh, going backwards. Verse 20. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Now this is everyone's, every parent's favourite verse, isn't it? <laughs> obey the Lord, child. Listen. That's what we want to say, but, but we probably shouldn't joke, because that pathway leads to an unfortunate outcome at times. Uh, if there are any children amongst us, I, my eyes are hopeless with the lights, but... There's probably some children in the room. If there is children in the room, well, I want to say God is speaking to you. And that's a wonderful thing. God, God loves children. He welcomes little children. And so it's a wonderful thing to have the opportunity to obey the Lord and therefore obey your parents in the Lord. That is wonderful. But can I say to the parents, notice there's no command for you to enforce children obeying. Don't enforce the children to obey. Uh, there's a command to the fathers in a moment, and we'll get to them. But what I want to say to parents is, don't use this verse as a stick. Force your children to obey you as a stick. That is not wise parenting. The wise parent disciples their child to know and love the Lord. Because the wise parent knows that the fruit of that is a child who is obedient. First to Jesus, and then to the parents. The wise parent helps the children to see their sin in the end is against God. You don't tell your children, you're sinning against me. You say, actually, this behavior is inconsistent with knowing God and loving him. So repent of that. Let's pray together. Let's turn back to God. We're both sinners. Let's pray. The wise parent disciples their child. They don't blame the youth leader. Can I say that very clearly? It is parents' responsibility to disciple children. The youth leader can't make your child a Christian. Praise God if it so happens that through the youth ministry, children become Christians. But I want to say to parents, own the discipleship responsibility. Raise your kids to know the Lord. Help them to love Jesus. And then how do you work with church? Well, partner with church. Be involved in the ministries of church to children. Partner with it. Encourage James. Pray for him. You know, all of these kinds of things. And the best way for you to disciple your kids, you won't be surprised, is to work on your own Christian life. That's the best way. 
You know, kids have this amazing thing. They have a hypocrisy meter built in. It is, it is the best piece of tech anyone has ever invented. If they look at their parents and see parents who don't love the Lord, they instantly know loving the Lord is a waste of time. That's how it works. That's pressure on the parents. I don't mean it to be. In, in fact, I want to say as well to the parents, it's good to realise the kids have to obey the parents. Like, there is a responsibility to the kids. We can't force our children to be Christian. We can pray for them, we can disciple them, we can lead them. We can't force it. We can't own that because that is God's work in the end. Paul then turns to fathers, verse 21. Fathers, do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. Notice it's fathers. It's not parents and it's not mothers. It's fathers. There is some mutuality in this that we'll get to with men and uh, husbands and wives, but fathers have an obligation. Right back to Genesis, an obligation to lead in the family. And I think they have a mighty power to destroy in the family. That's why fathers do not embitter your children or they'll become discouraged. Fathers can provoke kids to anger and, and tear them from wanting to have a faith. Fathers can stir up their kids. Fathers are the ones that can set rules that are unachievable so kids are demoralised. Why would I want to be a Christian if I've got to follow that rule? There's a fascinating long-term study that often gets trotted out by preachers. Uh, if you've never heard this one before, well, you'll hear it again, I'm sure. Uh, in Switzerland in 99, they published this study. It had been going for 20 or 30 years in Switzerland. Back in the 70s, they wanted Switzerland to remain Christian. So they wanted to figure out what is the, humanly speaking, the, the way you do this? How do you keep your kind of society Christian? And so they studied families on, over the long term. When they published it in 99, the big key finding was... If the children are Christian, then almost certainly the father was a Christian. The biggest determinant, like the statistics are crazy, the biggest determiner is the father's faith in the child's faith if they remain a Christian over the long term. Now, I say that not to uh, undermine the mum's work in family life. Certainly women are propping up the work of discipleship in families everywhere we turn. But I will say because the fathers have this power to tear down. Whatever it is, if dad is not interested, the kids are often not interested. That's a very sad thing. That doesn't say kids can't become Christians. I'm a counterexample. No Christian family whatsoever. God can pluck you from nowhere. There are plenty of stories here, I'm sure, of being plucked from nowhere for the kingdom. What it does say, though, is if you are a Christian dad, take it seriously. Take it seriously. Ask your wife how you can help her. Ask your wife how to lead the children. Talk about it. Disciple your children. Take it on and own it. And whatever you do, watch how you behave. You can't force your kids to be Christian by moral teaching. You must do. Teach them about Jesus and why you love him. The best thing you can do for your kids. If you don't know where to start, talk to your wife. She'll have great ideas, I'm sure. Finally today, uh, wives and husbands. Now, I want to acknowledge the context that we're in. Uh, last week, just last weekend, many women and some men marched in Canberra protesting the abuse of women in society, the, the power imbalance, the, the sexism, the awful things that women have to suffer. Keep having to suffer. It's not going away. It, it's, it's not changing. You, you think about it, 120 years of feminism in four or five waves, depending how you look at it, there's been great changes for women, and yet 
there is still suffering. The leader of the protest said this, she said, we are here because it is unfathomable that we still have to fight this same stale, tired fight. And we hear it, don't we? We feel sorry for what she's saying and all the people who are so wronged, evilly wronged in this world, all of these women. The newspapers have suggested the solution. If you've been following the news during the week, the solution is educate people. Train people in the rules of consent, train people in how to think about interacting with the opposite sex, all, all of these kinds of things. And I say, maybe that will help a bit, maybe. But with all due respect to those wrestling with an evil in the world, as Christians, we know that rules don't solve problems. The heart is where the problem lies, and you can put as many rules as you want in place. The heart finds a way around a rule. And that's because of a bigger problem that I think only we Christians can call. We call it out. That is sin. Sin is the fundamental problem. It leads to all sorts of consequences, but sin is rebellion against God's good order. Sin is living for myself. And the only answer for sin is that Jesus Christ died to set us free of it, to redeem us so that we might live the way he wants us to live. That's why we read Genesis 1.31. Thank you, Aria, for your introduction to it. Uh, we read Genesis, sorry, 1 and a little bit of, uh, a little bit of 1, a little bit of 2. Genesis 1.31 at the end says, God looked at creation and it was good. God's not to blame. God made a good creation. It was a well-ordered creation. And humanity, crazily, we are the pinnacle of creation. We're the ones that get a whole chapter where it magnifies in. So what is this whole humanity thing we're talking about? Genesis 2, if you want to flip back to Genesis 2 to just sort of look as we go along, Genesis 2 uh, delves into humanity. Uh, Adam needed a suitable helper, Eve. He first checked out all the animals, no good, not suitable. He needed a woman, not identical, but equally valuable, complementary to him, somebody who would make him more than he was on his own. And with her, all creation was good. All creation was rightly ordered under God. God over humanity, man and woman, in their, in their different created natures, over all of the garden and the rest of uh, creation. But we know what happens in chapter 3. Chapter 3, there's this great overturning. It all becomes because of sin. Uh, Eve takes that apple. It looks good to her. Did God say, really, really? And Adam bought into this. And Satan's lie was listened to and, and it all turned around and God was put at the bottom of the pile. And the whole rest of the Bible is the consequence of that falling. That terrible situation where we had a great and good relationship with God and then we were kicked out of the garden. And so Genesis 4 and onwards is the story of redemption. If you want a summary of the Bible... It's Genesis 1 to 3, and then Jesus came to bring us back into the kind of picture and patterns that we have at the start. Of course, if you read the detail, humanity is littered with sin in the Bible. It's awful. Chapter 4 is awful on its own, and it just keeps going. And so as Christians, we see protests that happen, and are we surprised that men are lording it over women and doing evil things? Not at all. That women do evil things as well, that humans as a whole are out of step with God. We are not surprised. 
And we know the only solution is reconciliation in Jesus. There is the big backdrop. There's the painting a picture of the backdrop as we come into verse 18. Verse 18. Sorry, back in Colossians, if you did turn to Genesis. Verse 18. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Uh, Notice the command is to wives regarding husbands, not to all women regarding all men. Not at all. This is in the home, the domestic situation. That's the context. Uh, The word submit is a dirty word. It's a dirty word. It's, It's as bad as obey, but we can laugh about that because it's to kids. Submit is a dirty word. And when you look it up in the Oxford Dictionary Online, submit equals yielding to a superior force. That is a dirty word. That's not right. That's not what Paul is saying. Husbands are not superior forces, not even in the slightest. Paul is saying here, choose to submit yourself to your husband's leadership. And I like the new NIV's translation over the old. The old said, wives, submit to your husbands. The new, wives, submit yourselves to your husbands, just captures there's an action, there's an activity here for women to actively choose to let him be in charge. And that is slightly different. And the only reason you do it is because it is fitting in the Lord. Now that on its own would ask lots of questions. What is it fitting to be in the Lord? But, but that's why we just looked at Genesis. What is fitting in the Lord? Ordered, peaceful, loving relationships. That is fitting in the Lord. God created us to be in those kind of situations. The situation we are given is fitting. And so we want to, in, in Christ, we would love to see fitting relationships. Husbands and wife are equal, but different. Compliments, not for war, but, but peace, so that the sum of the whole is wonderfully better than on its own, each individual. Paul's calling is an outworking of 3-1. Put off an earthly war and battle of the genders and put on the wonderful, glorious unity of a well-functioning Christian marriage. This has never been more radical, I don't think. Divorce rates are going towards 60% now. They just keep going. It is out of control in our society. It's hard to point to a good marriage. Wouldn't it be wonderful if Christian marriages were good and observably so? Now, what does it look like in practice here? Well, it doesn't mean a woman is to be ruled over. Not at all. It doesn't mean a woman should cop abuse. Not at all. It doesn't mean you are less important or your opinion less valuable. Not at all. It means seeing the good of an ordered relationship under God. It means helping your husband for the good of the whole, for the good of the family, for the good of the together. If he is being ungodly, whatever it is, it doesn't help him to be allowed to be ungodly. Whatever the ungodly behaviour is, I would say to a wife in terrible ungodly behaviour, remove yourself, walk away, allow room for him to repent to turn back and turn back to the Lord because ungodly behaviour shouldn't be helped. <laughs> that's one end of the spectrum, and I, I do pray that that's not the end of the spectrum of any of our marriages, but, but we have to acknowledge it. At one end of the spectrum, there are dangerous relationships, and as a church, we want to put an end to those. We want to see those worked out, and if you are in a difficult marriage at that end of the spectrum, please talk to someone. Please get help. 
as soon as possible. But for most Christian marriages, I pray, I trust, wives, you can actually help your husband to grow in godliness by giving him a little bit of space to lead in your family, being gentle with him when he gets it wrong, because he will, and most often wives are right. Give him room to make the mistakes. Occasionally, a lady will say to Heather or to me, my husband won't lead. How do I make him? That's the wrong way to think about it. You can't force him. That's just turning the thing around in a different way. Don't force him to lead, but give him the space to lead. I mean that practically. Often a man won't step in if he doesn't see a need. It's a weakness of men as a general rule. If you're a man that steps in and owns things, praise God for you, but as a general rule, men won't step in and act. Someone else will do it for me, praise God for that other person. But that can be unhelpful. So if as a mother you're doing all the burden of discipling your children, maybe, don't be prescriptive, give him room to step in, ask him, how can we disciple our children? What, how do you want to do it? With time, you reap rewards as a wife as you help him to step into leading and loving his wife. And I'll get to that in a second because of what it means for a husband to actually be a husband. Before I go there, I want to just pause for a moment. This passage is about men and women in the home. That's, that's the context of the passage. Uh, so I don't need to talk about other things. I don't need to talk about men and women in church life. I don't need to talk about all those kind of things. But I do want to pause just to talk about one thing, uh, and that is... Uh, preaching in church and women preaching in a mixed congregation. Uh, I want to be honest about this, just straight up, because I'm, I like to be an honest person. Uh, I think men are called to do preaching, authoritative teaching, preaching, in a mixed context, but not all men. So actually a very small subset of people who are taught, trained, equipped, affirmed, and held accountable for their teaching. If I teach heresy, I need to be put out. <laughs> or rebuke, or whatever it is. Uh, in the Bible, men and women are equal in value, but not identical in church life. And so one area of difference, I believe, is the preaching area. And I, I know that Nigel, prior to me, had moved to that position as well. But I, I just want to be honest, because people are saying, are we going to go back and asking me that? Uh, what I'd like to do is, if you want to have a conversation about that, that's good. I'd I love talking about why I believe certain things, because why I believe certain things is the Bible. So that means we're talking about the Bible, and that is a good conversation to have. But I want to recommend a book, uh, Claire Smith's God's Good Design. If this is something you want to think through, every passage to do with men and women and the question of authority and church structure is addressed. She does a very helpful job, better than I could do if I had to sit down and write it all out. And so that's a great place to start, and then we can have a good conversation as you see where I'm coming from, which is the Bible uh, in all of this. Um, I've talked to Leanne about this uh, a little bit. Uh, you know, Leanne said, please talk about this to me. Very happy to, with everyone, I mean. She's very happy for me to talk about this. Leanne is a godly and gifted woman. Absolutely the case. I have only known her for two months, and I believe that to be true. I'm enjoying getting to know her, and we've had some really helpful discussions working through what we believe on different things, and we can easily work together. Where we have differences so minor, it's, it's not even a deal. Uh, the church policy around preaching in a mixed congregation, Leanne and I are not at odds. Please don't think that. And so what I do want to say, and this may never happen, you may never have done it, I want to say, 
never use Leanne as the way to talk to me about this. So, so if you have a problem with me over this, and I'd say you have a problem with the Bible, please come and talk to me about it. Leanne is too godly and too valuable to have to bear the burden of then having to try and work out, what do I do with this that someone else wants me to preach? Uh, she, she's very upfront on it too, but I want to be upfront with you as well. Now, as I say, this isn't in the passage today. It's not the point of the passage today, but I didn't want to leave it unaddressed. And I do want to say the Bible is useful for all things. That's where we go to work these questions out. Not the main point for today, though. Verse 19, husbands. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Now, if you think that's easy, Romans 5.8, what is love? God showed his love for us in this. While we were sinners, his enemies, Christ died for us. Now, if you want love, that's love. So what is it to love your wife? Well, love in marriage is not sex and good times. That is not love. Love in marriage is laying down your life for your wife. So I want to encourage you to please, please, as husband, use all of your strength to serve your wife. Put her interests before your own. Uh, take responsibility for discipleship. Even if she's better at it, at least talk to her about it. Be in on it. Don't come home late all the time so she can't go to Bible study. Let her go and read the Bible as well with people. Drive the kids around when you know she's at wit's end. Take on Saturday sport. Don't disappear with your mates on the weekend. And certainly don't be harsh and use your physical or emotional power over her. There are so many things it means to be a husband. I don't want to minimise them. I want to maximise them. I want the men of our church to hear this. Because wives tremble at the word submit. Because what it means to be a Christian wife in this world, it's hard. And godly women are working through this and thinking through this and how do, how do I live it? But I want to say to the Christian men, we ought to tremble at what it means for us when Jesus comes back. We're accountable for how we lead and how we love and how we care for those in our family. For men with ears to hear, this is serious. And in Colossae, when Paul wrote, men got it three times serious. If they're a master or a slave, if they're a father, if they're a husband, this is serious, three times serious to hear. Now, finally on this, if you're in a marriage where one partner isn't actually playing their part, that's really hard. You can't force the other person. That's not our role to force the other person. If they're not yet Christian or they're not mature in their faith, we can't force them into that. But I want to say you're being incredibly faithful. You know, heroes of the faith, Hebrews 11, it's people like that are often the great heroes of the faith who are, who are walking in difficult marriages and loving the Lord, serving the Lord through them. Keep going if that is your marriage. Have people praying for you if that is your marriage. Pray that your husband or your wife will grow to full maturity or come to a faith if that's where they're up to. And don't be afraid to seek help. And so often people go for years like this and nobody's praying for them. Find a friend who will pray for your difficult marriage. There's probably more than you think there are around the place. And if you aren't married, there's probably a lesson here. When you think about marriage, make sure you think carefully about entering into marriage. Think about it in terms of the Christian household and could you live this? Is this something that you could do? Could you love your wife like Christ loves the church? Could you submit yourself to this man or not? Ask those questions before, not after. 
because, uh, well, I want to affirm the single life is a wonderful thing, particularly if you end up in a troubled marriage that you didn't make a wise decision about. My prayer for all the people in our church who are married is that God will give you strength because it's not always easy. If yours is a hard marriage, we want to be praying for you. We want you to be faithful in the circumstances you're in. But I also want to pray that there are marriages in our church that are a light and a beacon. Because there should be. If there are 60% of marriages breaking up, surely it's coming the point where it's basically Christian marriages that are succeeding, that are godly, that are Christ-honouring, where people are happy and joyful. It would be wonderful if our church is a beacon of hope on the front of relationship. The men and women aren't at war, but peace and joy together. There's been a lot of challenges today. It's a difficult passage. There's probably plenty more that you'd like to talk about and work through. Uh, Happy to do that, and I'm sure the rest of the staff team are. But Colossians 3 goes right into your home, into your bedroom, into your backyard, into the garage, wherever you're living with your family. And the answer to domestic Christianity is not to say, well, let's change the message so we can live it. The answer is to live it out to put on the new life, to not domesticate the message, but to live out Christianity in the home. And when we do, I think we will model heaven, just a tiny bit, model heaven to our friends and to our families. Set your minds on things above. Let's draw this together for today with 3.17. What do we do with this? 3.17, whatever you do, whether in word or deed, whether you're even in your home, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus giving thanks to God the Father through him. Amen.